sing that you are all that we need and the one that we trust. We thank you for your great love for us while we were yet sinners, that you would come and die for us, that you are still interceding for us. You will come again and bring us home, that where you are, we will be also forever, and we'll behold your glory. We'll see you as you are. We'll be like you. Lord, you are an all-sufficient Savior. You've done everything necessary. You paid the debt in full. You keep us in faith. You will bring your work to completion when you come back. Your grace is sufficient for every need and every trial and every want that we have. Lord, you're enough. Lord, I pray for... (laughs) your work in our hearts that we would believe that, Um, not just know it or read it or talk about it, but that there would be a deep sense of resting in you and all that you are and that that would be more than enough for us. We mentioned in Sunday school the hymn that you, O Christ, are all we want, more than all in you we find. Lord, may that be so. May that be true in our lives. I pray for anyone who doesn't know you this morning, Lord, who still thinks they can make their way to God in their own willpower or strength or goodness, thinks they are sufficient in themselves. Lord, I pray that they would renounce that and turn to you as the only one who can save. We ask you now as we open your word together, that you'd open our eyes to behold the wonderful things that are there and that our hearts would just rejoice in the truth that you have revealed to us. I pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Many of us will be taking some kind of road trip this summer. On what basis do we hope we will arrive at our destination and get back home safe and sound? Do we just assume we'll be okay because we're traveling in good weather instead of in the wintertime? Or because we have a reliable car? Or maybe we're depending on technology. After we bought one of our cars a few years back, I got an email that said, only one button offers total peace of mind. Activate your free three-month trial in your OnStar-equipped vehicle for immediate 24-7 support whenever you need it. Only OnStar keeps you protected, prepared, and in control while on the road. Well, those are all nice things, but ultimately our safekeeping is in God's hands. That's one of the themes in our text for this morning. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 121 as we begin another year of summer psalms. The superscription, that little words between before verse 1 tell us it is a song of ascents. It is one of 15 psalms with that title, and they're all songs that were sung by pilgrims on their way up 
to Jerusalem. But as we'll see as we keep going, the scope of the Lord's protection goes far beyond that. The ESV Bible study note says, this psalm seems to intended to instill confidence in those making the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship. The successful journey becomes a parable for the whole of one's life in which the faithful can be confident of God's tireless care. And several writers see a parallel uh, to Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. The full title of that great book is The Pilgrim's Progress from This World to That Which is to Come, delivered under the similitude of a dream, wherein is discovered the manner of his setting out, his dangerous journey, and safe arrival at the desired country. We'll start with the first two verses, which talk about relying on the Lord's help. So Psalm 121, verse 1 and 2. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. We're not really sure why the psalmist is looking up at the hills or the mountains, but for some reason, it prompts him to ask the question, where does my help come from? And it prompts us to ask the same question. Where do we look in times of need? To what or whom do we turn when we feel weak or feel like we can't deal with the challenging demands of life in our own strength? Help with marriage stuff and parenting problems and health issues and other troubles that often feel overwhelming. Everybody needs help sometime, and there are various options we might try. But the psalmist says very clearly where he is looking for help. He says, my help comes from the Lord, the one who made heaven and earth. So whatever others do, whatever others trust in, I am trusting the almighty creator of the universe to help me in time of need. Just notice two things about the God we're relying on. First, he is the Lord. If you see that word in all capital letters, it's translating uh, the word Yahweh or Jehovah, the name God revealed to Moses at the burning bush, roughly meaning I am that I am, the eternally existing, never-changing, all-sufficient God, the one who is always with us. And not only that, he is the maker of heaven and earth. And you think of a verse like Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. So God never has to say, I'd like to help you, but I can't. People say that. Maybe you've had somebody say that to you. I, you know, I just don't know what to do for you. I, there's nothing more I can do. I don't know what to tell you. I'd like to help, but, but God is almighty. All the help we will ever need is found in him. Here are a few other verses that encourage us to look to the Lord for our help. Psalm 46, 1, maybe you have it memorized. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. 
So God is abundantly available to help when we need him. Maybe you've had the experience of calling the doctor's office when one of your kids is sick and it's busy and then you try again and you get an answering machine. You don't want to leave a message so you try again. You get put on hold and you listen to that music for a while. And eventually you talk to a real person only to find out it's going to be a few days before you can get in to see the doctor. That is not a very present help. But God is a very present help. Remember the verse in Hebrews 4. Let us go with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help. When? In time of need. When we need it. Not just get put on hold for later. God's help is always available. Or Psalm 94, 17. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have soon dwelt in the abode of silence. If it wasn't for him, I'd, I'd be done. Or Psalm 146, verse 5. It says, how blessed, truly happy in the full sense of the word, is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. So whatever challenges we're facing, no matter how hard they are, no matter how many there are, we can always rely on the Lord's all-sufficient help. The rest of the psalm is about resting in the Lord's keeping. So back to Psalm 121, verses 3 through 8. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. So we have multiple translations, but in Hebrew, the word keep and keeper is used all six times in those six verses. It's the idea of guarding or watching over to protect from harm. So years ago, I asked one of the kids at church where her brother was. And she replied in the words of Cain from Genesis, am I my brother's keeper? In other words, am I responsible to keep track of where my brother is at all times? Am I in charge of watching out for him and taking care of him? And it didn't sound like she had signed up for that role. <laughs> so like, that's mom and dad, not me. But the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, says, I am your keeper. I have taken full responsibility for your safety and well-being. I have committed myself to watch over you and take care of you. Your safekeeping is ultimately in my hands. And as Matthew Henry says, he must be well kept who has God for his keeper. And we are. We are well kept because God is our keeper. So let's look at some of the phrases describing the Lord's comprehensive care of his people. In verse 3, it says, He, God, the maker of heaven and earth, will not allow your foot to slip. 
Now, it might be a reference to feet literally slipping on the journey through the rocky hills on the way to Jerusalem. But in a bigger way, it often refers in the Bible to the idea that trials can sometimes knock us off our feet. We can sometimes lose our sense of balance or our spiritual equilibrium. And so you see that in Psalm 73. Remember Asaph, before he said, Whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you I desire nothing on earth? He starts the psalm by saying, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. And the rest of the psalm is about envying the wicked and those who don't even care about God seem to be doing so well. Those who try to follow God seem to have life harder than those who don't care. And, and he's just trying to sort all that out. He says, I almost slipped over all this. I almost lost my footing. But there's other psalms besides Psalm 121 that just remind us that the Lord keeps us from stumbling. Psalm 94 if I should say my foot slips, your loving kindness, O oh Lord, will hold me up. So think of a kid going down a, a hill that's kind of uneven and holding on to mom and dad or mom and dad and, and, and will keep their feet from slipping, from wiping out down the hill. Or Psalm 66, verse 8 and 9. Psalm 66, 8 and 9 says, Bless our God, O peoples, and sound his praise abroad, who keeps us in life. There's that word keep again. He protects us, he guards us, he preserves us in life and does not allow our feet to slip. Back to Psalm 121, the next phrase. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So we wouldn't want to come home and find the babysitter sleeping while the kids are still awake. We don't want soldiers taking a nap while they're on guard duty. Elijah mocked the prophets of Baal and suggested the reason Baal wasn't answering them was perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. But God never sleeps. He never gets Tired, Isaiah 40, 28, do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Which means he is watching over us constantly, around the clock, 24-7. He never overlooks anything necessary for the safekeeping of his people. Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. So did you notice the shift from he who keeps Israel to the Lord is your keeper? He is not only the keeper of his people as a group. He is the keeper of each individual. He is watching over you personally. If you are a believer this morning, you can say the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, is my keeper. You can personalize it. He's my keeper. Before Dave Roper left Boise on a trip, he prayed with his family, Lord, protect Carolyn and the kids while I'm gone. And when he was finished, his wife Carolyn asked him, who do you think protects us while you're here? 
In other words, God is not just a substitute keeper. When one of the parents is gone, then he takes over. Or on an average day, we're on our own, and then in emergencies, he steps in and keeps us. He's always keeping us all the time. And then it says, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. So even here in the Midwest on a hot summer day at a baseball game or mowing the yard, the sun beats down on you and you really appreciate getting some shade. And in the Middle East, the sun is even more oppressive and shade is harder to find and it's a welcome relief from the unbearable heat. Isaiah 25 uses that kind of language. O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders, planned for long ago with perfect faithfulness, for you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. So just using this poetic imagery to say, the Lord protects us from harm day and night, sun or moon, Whatever happens under either of those, God's watching over us and protecting us. And then verse 7. The Lord will protect you or keep you from all evil. So what do we do with a verse like that? Or a verse like Psalm 91 verse 10. No evil will befall you. Those are tough questions. Here are a few texts that might help clarify those verses in light of the painful realities of suffering in this life. So again, we're back to Job in some senses, aren't we? There's this sovereign God who loves us and does all things well and still ordains that there be suffering in his people's lives. And here says, no evil will be Follow you. He keeps you from all evil. So how do we put that together? And here's an attempt using some texts that I think help us get at it. So go to Isaiah 43. And let's start in verse 1 of Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. So God's our creator. He's our redeemer. We belong to him. He takes ownership of us. He says, you're mine. And then he goes on to promise this. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So notice we are not exempt from having to go through deep waters and fiery trials 
of afflictions. He says when, not if. So there's no guarantees in the Bible that say we'll never have to deal with those kind of things. There's plenty of guarantees actually that says you should expect those things. Right? Jesus says in the world you will have tribulation. John 16, 33. 1 Peter 4, 12. Do not be surprised at the fiery trials that have come upon you as if some strange thing was happening to you. That's what we should expect. That's normal in a fallen world. So we're not exempt because we're God's people. But in the midst of such overwhelming experiences, like our going through a river that's washing over our heads or getting scorched by a fire, in the midst of all that, the Lord promises to be with us and to keep us from ultimately being harmed by them. And so as the hymn says, the flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. It won't ultimately hurt us. Or Luke 21, Luke chapter 21, starting at verse 16. Jesus is talking to his followers. Then and now, tells us, but you will be betrayed, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet, not a hair of your head will perish. You see how that's all together in one paragraph? If you're a follower of Jesus, you are not immune from being hated by everybody. You're not immune from having family members want to betray you. You're not even immune from being killed for the sake of Christ. But in spite of all those realities, not a hair of your head or my head will perish. In other words, Ultimately, nothing can harm us. Remember Luther's great hymn, The body they may kill, God's truth abides still. I mean, that's all they can do. That's the worst anybody can do is kill us, and then we go home to be with Jesus. One more text. Romans 8. Romans 8. We'll start in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So that's quite a list of potential threats. Those are live options. Paul went through, like all of those. <laughs> the early church went through. 
all of those. A lot of church history has experienced all of those. We might before it's all over. And we are as helpless and weak and defenseless as a bunch of sheep getting led to the slaughterhouse. So we're not going to be able to protect ourselves when that's happening to us and around us. Yet, we are more than conquerors. Not because we're spared from all of those dangers. The victory doesn't come because we don't have to deal with that. The victory comes in those things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In other words, knowing none of those things or all of them put together can ultimately harm us or separate us from the love of Christ is how we're more than conquerors. Benjamin Warfield and Annie Kincaid got married in New Jersey when they were just 25 years old. And while the newlyweds were still on their honeymoon, Annie was struck by lightning and paralyzed for the rest of her life. So here's what Benjamin wrote later about the promise of Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 got brought up in Sunday school this morning. We know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him to those who are called according to his purpose. So, you're on your honeymoon as a 25-year-old and your wife gets struck by lightning and she's an invalid, can't leave the home. This is early 1900s. Not some of the medical care now. So she's at home. And for the next 39 years, she's paralyzed. How is that for good? It's a fair question. Here's what he wrote. All that comes to you is under his controlling hand. If he governs all, then nothing but good can befall those to whom he would do good. And he will so govern all things that we shall reap only good from all that befalls us. In other words, God is sovereign over everything that happens, including lightning, including paralysis, including a lifetime of having a lot different marriage than I thought I was signing up for. And ultimately, no evil can harm us. Only good will befall us. That's a fight of faith. I'm sure that... Didn't come overnight. I don't think he wrote that the day after she got hit by lightning. Maybe not even the first few years she's laying there paralyzed. I don't know how long it took him to write those sentences, but he did. And it's because Romans 8.28 is true. Whether we see it or not, we can understand it or not, at the time of we even guess, how is this good, Lord? That's what the promise says, and God can't lie. So no evil can ultimately harm us. Nothing but good can befall those to whom a sovereign God desires to do good to, namely his children. Keep back in Psalm 121. Keep overlapping with Job, don't we? <laughs> Can't get away from Job. The second part of verse 7 says... He will keep your soul. He will preserve 
your soul. We are not just physical beings. We're not just animals. We are spiritual beings with eternal souls. So think of Jesus' searching question. What shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? In other words, it doesn't matter if you're the richest man ever. If you die and go to hell, what good is that? What do you gain? What does it profit you? There's nothing more valuable than your soul. So have you ever thought through that? After our mortal bodies, these fleshly bodies die, our souls continue to exist forever and ever in either hell or heaven. So the only two options. And so if you haven't thought about it before, you need to ask the question, where will I spend eternity? It's not just you're dead and that's it. It's you're, you die and then you go to either heaven or hell. And if you're not sure, first of all, acknowledge, I have no right to think I am entitled to heaven. Ezekiel 18 says, the soul that sins shall die. Well, you and I have sinned. All of us have sinned. We've all disobeyed and dishonored God in thought, word, and deed. Which means all of us deserve eternal death, not eternal life. Second will be, I can't do anything that would make up for my sin or qualify me for heaven. It's really sad to see the surveys, how many people think God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible. That's Ben Franklin. Poor Richard's Almanac. It's not in the Bible. It's absolutely contrary to the Bible. It's the opposite of the Bible. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who look to him for grace. Romans 4 says it this way. Now to the one who works, help yourself. His wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So if you try to work for it, you lose it. It's the way God set it up. You cannot work for your relationship with God or a place in heaven by being a good person or going to church or giving money to charity or any of those good things but by trusting the one who justifies the ungodly. And so I turn from my rebellion against God and I trust Christ alone to do everything necessary to rescue me from sin and restore me to God. I believe his death on the cross the only way my sins can be washed away, the only way I can be forgiven and I believe he rose again on the third day to show he had conquered sin, death, and hell. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if God has saved us, he will keep us to the end. Go to John 
17. This is Jesus' prayer. John 17, verse 11. I am no longer in the world, yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Protect them, guard them, preserve them in your name. Verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. 2 Timothy 1.12, maybe you can't think of the verse without the old song that goes with it, but I know whom I have believed. I am persuaded he is able to, what? Keep that which I've committed to him against that day. I've entrusted my eternal soul to him. I am persuaded he's able to keep, preserve it forever until he comes back. I'm not in charge of my own safekeeping. I'd be gone. He's able to keep me. Or 1 Peter 1. We'll just start at verse 3 because it's part of the sentence. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God, preserved, protected by the power of God himself through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So God is keeping a, an inheritance for us and he keeps us for that inheritance because he's in charge of our safe keeping of our souls, not just our physical well-being. And then verse 8. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. How long is he going to do that? From this time forth and forevermore. So how's that for a comprehensive statement of the Lord's safekeeping? Wherever we are, wherever we go, whatever we're doing in all of our circumstances, the Lord never stops watching over us. He keeps our souls and all that concerns us for all of time and all of eternity. Some of you remember Marshall Stahlheim, dear brother that moved to Omaha a few years back. And uh, we were at a prayer meeting. We were talking about some verses in Romans 8 that are sometimes called the golden chain of salvation. It talks about God's plan from eternity past all the way into eternity future. So these are the verses. And then I'll tell you what Marshall said as a comment after we read these. Verse 29. This is right after Romans 8, 28. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him or are called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And Marshall said, that's the whole trip. <laughs> eternity past to eternity future, the whole trip and everything in between. 
God does it. God oversees it. God planned it. God executes it. God preserves it. So I would say Psalm 121 isn't just about Jewish pilgrims getting to Jerusalem or even us getting home safe and sound after a vacation trip. It's ultimately about assuring us the Lord will get us all the way home from this dangerous world to heaven safe and sound. Or as John Newton puts it, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. How did I make it this far? It's grace that brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me all the way home. Let's pray. Well, thank you, Father, that you have a plan of salvation for your people. You thought of everything. You took care of all the obstacles including our own dead hearts and stubborn wills. Problem of sin that was such a barrier between us that we could never remove by anything we could do. I thank you that Jesus was the answer to everything that we needed. And so, Lord, many of us in this room can rejoice that you have promised to keep us until we are home with you forever. And I pray for anyone who's here today who doesn't have that assurance or has a very flimsy basis of assurance for that, Lord. I pray that they would put their hope and trust in Christ alone to rescue them and to bring them to you. Lord, I pray that we would rest in this truth, that you are our keeper. We don't have to fear. We don't have to worry. You will take good care of us because you do all things well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.